If you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, for those of you who are guests with us this morning, uh, typically we preach uh, through books of the Bible. We just finished up the book of Jude a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to be starting the book of Daniel in September. Uh, But we're taking just a couple of weeks to uh, look through our mission statement as a church that we're desiring to go higher in worship, deeper in community, and farther in mission. So last week, we looked at that phrase, higher in worship, from Psalm chapter 100. And the desire that we have as a church to continually be learning more about who God is, that we may worship Him better. And looked at the aspects of what worship is, that worship on Sunday morning is not just about the songs that we sing, but it's about every part of the service. It's about the songs that we sing, but it's also about the giving that we do, and it's also about the Word being preached. Uh, that we are instructed in God's Word. All of that is a part of worship. And we gather here not to satisfy ourselves, but we gather here to worship and praise and to give glory and honor to God. That is the top priority of what we are gathered here to do. Now, this morning, we're going to look at this phrase, deeper in community. And we're going to look at that from Acts chapter 2. I think it's a wonderful passage that speaks to the idea of what God intends for the the local church and the idea of community and fellowship together. So if you found your way there, I would ask that you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 41 and going down to the end of the chapter in verse 47. This is the Word of the Lord. So then, those who had received His Word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed together had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you can be seated this morning. A very familiar passage we find here in Acts chapter 2, and it comes right after uh, Peter's sermon there. Uh, after he, the day of Pentecost had happened, you remember the Christians had gathered there into that upper room and had begun to pray, and the Holy Spirit had descended upon them. And the power of the Spirit came upon the church. This is an exciting passage for us, even as Baptists. Oftentimes people think that Baptists have forgotten totally about the Holy Spirit. But we remember here that the Holy Spirit is given to all of us as Christians, He has given us His Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt the believers on the day of Pentecost is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you this morning if you are a child of God. And the same power that God gave to the church at Pentecost is the same power that indwells in you now some 2,000 years later. And we need to remember that because oftentimes we can read Acts and we can read Acts chapter 2 and read all the things that happened in the book of Acts and we tend to think, that, oh, well, that was great of what God was doing then. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged that God can and will do the same thing through you today if you learn to operate your life under the power of the Holy Spirit, to submit your life to Him. So here in Acts chapter 2, Peter had just stood up and he had delivered this powerful message 
talking about the gospel, what God was going to do on the earth now that he had sent his spirit. What God had done through Jesus Christ in sending him to come, and not just to come, but to live a perfect life and to die upon the cross and to be resurrected from the dead. The gospel had been preached. And so here at the end of this chapter, what Luke relates to us here is this resulting fellowship and community of the body of Christ. So I want you to first notice here as we look at this passage this morning, first, how the community was established, how this community of faith was established. Look at verse 41. It says, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So this community was established through one thing. It was established through the preaching of the gospel and the salvation of lost people. It says, so then, he's referring back to what had been preached and the response of those, because when they heard the gospel being preached, the scripture tells us there in verse 37, it says, they were pierced to the heart and they said, brethren, what must we do? Peter said, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they said, let's do it. They repented of their sins. They put their faith and trust in Christ. The gospel had transformed their lives. It was the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit that established this community. It was the obedience of the disciples to go out and do what God had called them to do, despite what others might think, despite what others might criticize them about. They were willing to go and to take the good news of Christ to their brothers and sisters in the community because they knew that that was far more important than anything else. They were accused of being drunkards. They were accused of, of being drunk early in the morning as they're out here speaking in these other tongues that no one had, that, that people who didn't know their language could understand. It was the preaching of the gospel that established that community. And as we look around this morning, this is what establishes communities of faith. We're here this morning, not because we all like the same football team, not because we all drive the same color car. We're here this morning because we have been established as a fellowship because we have all put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're an established community of faith. And notice that it's what it says there. It says that those who have believed. There's an important distinction for us to understand, and I really think it's important in light of culturally what many people assume about church. Now, on any given Sunday morning, the doors of this church are open to whoever would come in and sit down to hear the gospel preached. If some random person who, who's never been to church before has no idea who Jesus is, no idea what the Bible is, if they walk in here on a Sunday morning, they are welcome to come in and they're going to be received with open arms to hear the preaching of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, the gathered body of Christ on Sunday morning is not for lost people. It's for the body of Christ. Now, lost people are welcome to come, but inherently what church is for on Sunday morning is for the body of Christ to come together to be trained, to be instructed, to grow in their faith so that then they can go out into a lost world and proclaim the gospel to those who have never heard. So many people assume that it's the job of the church for, or especially sometimes in some churches, I think it's just the job of the pastor to get all the lost people into one building and preach to them on Sunday morning. But we find that nowhere in the New Testament. When we find the church in the New Testament, we find the body of believers gathered together. And in fact, notice that's what it says here. It says, so then, those who had received his word were baptized, 
And they added that day about 3,000 souls. And then in verse 42, he starts talking about that fellowship and he uses that word they. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about those who heard the preaching of the gospel, who believed and were baptized. Notice also in this passage that it's not just that he talks about here that they were, had received the word and were baptized, but that they were added to the church. Notice that word there. It says they were added about 3,000 souls. Well, if you're going to add something to something, there has to be something for you to add it to. Now, what I mean by that this morning is here is a very clear passage that talks about the idea of a, and we don't know how they did it here in the early church, but at least in some way they understood that there was a membership aspect to the body of Christ, that you were a part of something. It wasn't just a generalized gathering. They were a part of something. They knew the people inside the church. Now, a lot of times today you will hear people oppose the idea of specific membership inside of the church. They say, well, why should I be a member of a church? Why should I have to go through the process to become a member? Well, because the Scripture is very clear that in order for us to hold one another accountable, in order for us to do what God has called us to do as the body of Christ, we need to know who we are. And if we don't know who we are, then we can't be the one another's that the Scripture commands us to be. So here, the community has been established. The body of Christ, the church here in Jerusalem, is being established. And so as we look around ourselves this morning, we are a community of faith that has been established by God. Almost 100 years ago, some dear Christians started a Bible study on the front porch of their house in order to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That very quickly turned into a larger gathering and was established as a church. A church that now has been here, again, almost 100 years, right here on this spot on Russ Avenue with one purpose, and that is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church was established. This community was established. But I want you to also notice in verse 42, the community was not just established, but it was grounded. This is an important part for us to understand. What is it that a community of faith, what is it that a church is supposed to be doing? Now, last week we talked about different aspects of worship. On Sunday morning in the gathered assembly, what is it that we are supposed to be doing as the body of Christ? Now, Luke alludes to some of that here, but he also points to some other things that happen even outside of the walls of the church. Look at verse 42. He says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I've already pointed out that that word they there means the church. It's the members of this community of faith. Now, they're not just going to come together after their conversion and just hang out all the time. There's an important aspect of that. But there's something more specific that Luke says that they were doing. You have to remember, these people had been saved out of their Judaism. They, for years and years, had been really kept in bondage by the Pharisees and all the additional rules that the Pharisees had given to the Jewish religion. Outside of the some 600 that God had given, they had added multitude and heaps of other things on top to really keep the people in bondage. So now these people have really found a newfound freedom in Christ to understand that Christ had, had come to, to, to satisfy every one of God's demands in the law, and that now that in Christ, 
They were no longer expected to try to keep up with all of these laws in order to maintain righteousness with God, but that their righteousness had been granted to them by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So they're trusting in this. And they're passionate about this. Notice what it says here. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That word continually there means to be persistent. It means to continue in. It's something that they were passionate about. They they didn't desire just to say, okay, now I'm a Christian, and then now I'm going to go back and live my life the way I want to live it. The reason that Luke, I believe, explains it the way that he does this here is because he wants to help us to understand that the true sign of someone's genuineness in their conversion is that once they're a Christian, they want to continue being a Christian and they want to grow in their Christianity. Oftentimes you see people who will make a profession of faith at a service or at an event, and then the very next week they're back to living their life the same way they were the day before. That's not true conversion. That's not true faith. Because Luke says here that these individuals were continually devoting. They were persistent in growing in their faith, devoting themselves to the faith. Now you say, well, you're just being legalistic this morning. Well, listen to what Jesus said, John chapter 8. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then... You are truly disciples of mine. So Jesus makes it very clear here that if we want to prove that we are truly disciples of his, we must continue in his word. Later on in John chapter 15, Jesus would say, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I think I've shared this story before, but it bears repeating. I one time was on a a, a mission trip. Uh, we had taken some young people uh, to a city to do some uh, some roofing work and some porch work, and they were so they divided us up into a number of teams because there were a lot of different churches there. And when we got back, I remember hearing the story uh, from another pastor who had been at that event, and he was talking about the house that they were working at. Next door, there was another house that was apparently a house where drugs were being sold. So there were people in and out all day. You could kind of tell what was going on. And so at some point during the day, he had gone over and begun to speak to one of the individuals who was there, and, and he, had, he had led this guy in a prayer uh, to become a Christian, and he's sharing this at the, at, the, at, the, at the service after the event is over, and these were the words he said. He said, now, he said, that guy might have gone right back to dealing drugs the next day, but I know when I die, I'm going to see him in heaven. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, no. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not just a Band-Aid that we put on our hand. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card that you just take and put in your pocket and keep until later on in life. Luke helps us to understand here that when we are genuinely saved, the community is grounded in the faith, and it continues to ground themselves there. He says they were doing this continually devoting themselves the interesting thing that I was, I was studying this week that one commentator pointed out is that of these some 3,000 people who joined the church here on the day of Pentecost, there is no record in any of the scriptures that any of them departed from the faith. And this commentator said, and there's no reason to assume that they did, right? Because 
They had true saving faith. It was not superficial. It was not a head-only faith, but it was a faith that was deeply passionate about growing in Christ. He says, what were they continually devoting themselves to? Well, first, he says to the apostles' teaching. And it's no mistake that Luke lists this here first. He says they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. He's not here pointing out that it was all about the apostles. He's talking about the teaching. And what was this teaching? Remember back as we studied Jude a few weeks ago, this was the faith once for all delivered to the saints. God in his sovereignty and his providence chose the apostles to deliver the faith to the saints. He had spoken it to them. He had given it to them. It was their responsibility to hand it out to the church and in the church's responsibility to continue handing that down from generation to generation to generation. One of the most important things I be it outside of just solely worship of God, the most important thing that we do as we gather together is to study the Word of God. It is where we hear from God. It is where we are instructed by God. It is where we are comforted by God. It is where we are chastised by God. Through His Word, He gives us, as the Scripture says, everything for life and godliness. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means they were committing their lives to the study of God's Word, both in public and in private. And not just studying God's Word that they would know a lot about it, but studying God's Word and then applying those things to how they lived their life. And we can understand that because we see what happens in the following verses because they begin to do things that the Scripture commands them to do. And as we read throughout the book of Acts, we see them fleshing out the doctrine that they are learning as they are continually devoting themselves to the Word of God. Remember Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4? All the way throughout that chapter, Paul specifies this importance of the Word of God. He says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. Just a little bit later on, he says, Prescribe and teach these things. Continuing, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That means make this a top priority. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, we ensure salvation for both yourself and those who hear you. In his second letter to Timothy, he echoed those words, preach the word. He helped Timothy to understand, Timothy, the most important thing that you're going to do as a pastor is to faithfully preach the Word of God to God's people. This is why it's a regular part of the gathering of the body of Christ. That we study God's Word, that we're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In fact, this word, the way that the word was used in the New Testament, really just meant the idea of doctrine. It was the idea of understanding who God was, what He had instructed His people to do. Now, I find this interesting today because a lot of times you'll hear people say, you know, well, I'm, I'm not really concerned about doctrine. I'm not really concerned about studying doctrine or theology. Brothers and sisters, we need to know the doctrine of our faith. Now, you don't have to understand every matter of theology to become a Christian. All you have to know to become a Christian is that you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner, that you're in need of salvation, 
and that God has made a way for you to be saved through Jesus Christ. You repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in him. That's, that's what's required. That's the knowledge that's required. But if you want to become a greater Christian, if you want to grow in your faith, as the Scripture says that you should, you must understand and desire to know the doctrine of Scripture, to devote yourself to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Listen to what one commentator had to say. He said, we should count it a wasted day when we do not learn something new and when we have not penetrated more deeply into the wisdom and the grace of God. He says, we should count it a wasted day. If a day goes by and we have not learned something new or dove more deeply into the wisdom of God, we should count that day as a waste. Now, those are, those are strong words. But I want you to think about how many other things that we devote our time to during the day. And not that any of them are inherently evil, but there are so many things that we can devote our time and our efforts and our strength and our attention to. And we neglect the one thing that is most vital to us as Christians, and that is the study of God's Word. So he says this community was not just established here, but it is being grounded on the apostles' teaching. But he goes on, he says, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That word fellowship means togetherness or family. It's the idea that as the body of Christ, we are no longer strangers. As I look around this room this morning, there are men and women, boys and girls from all different places. Some of us have moved here from, from places far away from here. Some of us are local. We're, we're homegrown, so to say. We didn't know each other until we came a part of this church. But we're not strangers. We're not isolated. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The scripture is clear that we should look at one another across this room, not just as people that we like, or people that we're friends with, but we are flesh and blood. We've been born into the body of Christ. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. No matter where we're from, no matter what our background is, we are all part of one body. And if we're all part of one body, we should care for one another like we're part of one body. Now, this fellowship comes from the fruit of studying the Word of God. Now, worship, again, worship of God is the number one reason we gather here, but fellowship is the result of that. Some of my strongest friendships that I have have come through gathering together with individuals and diligently studying God's Word. And as you study God's word together, there is a, a unity that happens. There's a kinship that happens that is stronger than any other relationships. Even if sometimes you don't always agree on every minor nuance of theology. I have very strong opinions about eschatology, and I have a very good friend of mine who's on the exact opposite end of his eschatology. But you know what? I love him. He's a brother in Christ. We care about each other because we're family. The fellowship aspect is one of the most important things that we do as the body of Christ. It's an essential thing that we gather together. Why? Because we're family. That's what families do. I want you to think that if you had a family, you may say a rather large family, but you never got together to do anything, 
Never got together at Christmas. Never got together at Thanksgiving. Never got together for birthdays, for Fourth of July cookouts. What, what would you, how would you describe the dynamics of your family if you never got together to do anything? It'd be a very poor family relationship. And it's the same thing for the church. If, if all Christians did was just come together and sit in here on Sunday mornings and then leave and were never a part of each other's life, it would be a very poor Christian fellowship. So there's an aspect here that it's not just about what we're doing in here on Sunday morning, but that we're actually living life together as a family. This is why during the week we should be calling one another, texting one another, going out to coffee with one another, being a part of each other's lives because we are not isolated in the faith. We are part of the body of Christ. We are a fellowship. We are a community of faith. As part of that fellowship, there's even part of that that we do together on Sunday mornings. Now, obviously, we sing. We hear the word preached. There's something that we do as a church at the end of every Sunday morning worship service that is a part of fellowship and community, and that's the Lord's Supper. He says that they were devoting themselves not just to fellowship, but to the breaking of bread. Now here, that phrase is referring to the Lord's table. Jesus says that as often as you drink it, you do it in remembrance of me. He has called us to come to the table together. There's a reason why throughout church history, church has said that we, the, the Lord's table is not something we do in isolation. You don't go home and have communion by yourself. You have communion in the gathered assembly of the body of Christ. We do it as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a command here that we're to come to the Lord's table. And as we do, we remember what God has done. But there's also a self-examination that happens here, that every Sunday morning we're reminded of the warning that came to the Apostle Paul that we're not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. But we come to the table and allow God to examine our hearts. Because as sinful creatures, you know what we often do? We often, so we often begin to kind of paint over and whitewash certain areas of our life. And say, well, that's, you know, maybe that's, bad, but maybe it's not too bad. Sure not as bad as what that guy over there is doing. But when we're reminded of what the scripture says, Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, says that if you come to the table in an unworthy manner, that God can and has killed people for it. I want to say that again, because oftentimes I think we can glance over that passage Paul says, for this reason, some of you are asleep. And he means you have died because they came to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And the reason that that's so specific is because every time we get ready to come to the Lord's table, we're called to a period of self-examination. Okay, Lord, how am I this morning? Is there anything that I need to confess is there anybody I need to go talk to? Am I persevering in the faith? Am I doing everything that you've asked me to do? It's a period of self-examination. But we do that together as the body of Christ. We should encourage one another as we come to the Lord's table. And there at the end, I want you to notice he says, not just to the breaking of bread, but also to prayer. 
I think it's perfect how Luke gives these two as bookends. He starts here by saying that the community is grounded in the faith first by the apostles' teaching, and then the other bookend to that of how they're grounded in faith is by prayer. Because prayer is the power of the church. You can have everything that seems necessary for church to occur, but if you don't have prayer, you will have no power in your church. Prayer demonstrates our dependence upon God. You want to know how dependent upon God you are? Evaluate your prayer life. The less you pray, the less you're depending upon God and the more you're depending upon yourself. The more you pray, the more you're depending upon God and the less upon yourself. We should go to God first in every manner. Now, what's interesting here is Luke is not specifically talking about private prayer, although private prayer is, 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 is paramount to the Christian faith. But here he's talking about the idea of public prayers, that there were frequent public prayers as the believers were gathered together. They were praying for one another. We know because many of them were going through discouraging circumstances as they become Christians. Many of them would have ended up facing persecution. Many of them were poor, not only in spirit, but in finance. So they're praying for one another, but they're also praying for the kingdom's work. They're praying for God to do something in the midst of a wicked world. But why is public prayer so important? Besides the fact that it's commanded to us. I believe it's so important because we need to hear each other pray. We need to hear each other pray. Some of the most powerful moments that I've had in my Christian faith have been in prayer meetings where somebody who may not be the most vocal person in a public setting, maybe somebody who we would, would term as a little shy or a little bashful, opens up their mouth and begins to pray. I remember at a church that I served, one of the first churches I served at on staff, there was a young man in, in the, uh, he was, I think, a high school senior at the time that I was there. And, and just from the outside, just your typical, like, country boy, you know, he, he, he loved the Lord. He was faithful to come to church. He faithfully served and, and did all these things. But when he prayed, it was, you could tell that he was so dependent upon the Lord. And he believed what the Bible said about who God was. I remember back then, some of, probably some of the most powerful prayers I'd ever heard came from the mouth of this 18-year-old boy who on the outside somebody would look at and say, oh, you know, he's just a young kid. We need to hear one another pray. Why do we need to hear one another pray? Because this is how we demonstrate our utter dependence upon God for everything in our lives. We need to ask God to do the things that he has promised that he said he would do. Remember what John, Jesus said in John chapter 14? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, just as a quick reminder, Jesus is not saying that we can stand up and pray for a brand new SUV and that he's guaranteed going to be sitting in our driveway tomorrow morning. 
There are specifications here. He talks about the idea of praying in his name, praying according to his will. But I think oftentimes we're so afraid to pray boldly in his name and really expect God to do what he has said he's going to do. When we pray for lost people, we should pray expecting God to save lost people because that's according to his will. He says that he wants to save lost people. He says that he's going to save lost people. So we can pray and say, God, would you save, save this individual? Draw them to yourself. Bring them to a place that they'll confess their faith and trust in Christ. We pray upon blessings for our church. We're seeking to follow the Lord obediently to do what he's called us to do here in Haywood County. So when we have needs, we should pray boldly and ask God to meet those needs because those are prayers according to his will. Paul would urge Timothy. He said, I urge that entries and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. The body of Christ becomes a community when they pray together. Because it's in moments of prayer where we humble ourselves before God. There should be no pretenses to our prayers. We should be comfortable enough with one another that when we pray, we can pray openly and honestly. That we can bear our souls open before God. And we're not worried about what the person to the left or to the right is going to think about us. We're not worried that they're going to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, Oh, you'll never believe what so-and-so prayed in the prayer meeting today. Why? Because we're family. We're a community. This community was grounded. It was established and grounded because of the teaching, the fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Why? Because they continued devoting themselves to these things. What makes a church a church? What makes a church a community of faith? It is when those people continually devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And as we think about our church, this is what we want to commit ourselves to be, that we are a people of faith who are committed to devoting ourselves to these things. Thirdly, I want you to notice it was not just a community that was grounded, but it was a community that was um, impactful. They had an impact on those people around them. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, what's interesting is that word everyone there in the original language is not just talking about those inside the church. It's talking about those inside the church, but it's also talking about those outside of the church. It's talking about those who were not even Christians. As they saw what God was doing in the church, they were feeling a sense of awe. And that word awe means a fear. It's this reverential fear that they're standing back in astonishment. Even though all of them weren't being, uh, becoming Christians, they were still in awe of what God was doing amongst this group of people. Calvin said that this awe was given. He said, quote, it was done for the persevering and the furtherance of the church. End quote. What God was doing here was offering a restraining fear that the work of the church would not be hindered. 
But as the gospel was going forth, even those who were outside of Christ were looking back in astonishment, and really God was keeping their hands off of trying to do anything that would hinder the work of the kingdom. I find great comfort in that. I find great comfort in the fact that if God has called us to do something, that if necessary, he can and he will hinder those who would try to oppose us. Now, this is not to say that everyone were restrained because we know the church would begin to experience persecution. But just that we have this promise that the scripture says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Brothers and sisters, no matter how dark it looks in the world around us, no matter how many things people try to throw our way, no matter how many names they try to call us as Christians, God, when necessary, will restrain the hands of the evil one. We don't have to be afraid. There is this temptation in the world that we live in, and I know it because I've felt it myself. That there are moments when we need to say something and we're afraid to say it because we're afraid of what the response will be and the repercussions we'll face. There are moments where we need to take a stand and we're afraid to do it because we don't want to face the consequences. Brothers and sisters, be bold. God is in control. God is, has all things under his power. We have nothing to fear if we are obedient to him. He will handle everything that needs to happen. It was William Carey who said, expect great things and attempt great things. Oftentimes, we believe that God can do great things, but we're afraid to attempt great things for God. Because you know what we're worried about most often? We're worried about if we attempt something great for God, and in the world's eyes it fails, then people are going to think that we're a failure. We should attempt great things for God and not care at all what the world thinks about it. Because when we go out and do great things for God or attempt great things for Him, oftentimes the world is always going to judge it as a failure. Pastor Wes and I have this, this joke, that we're not really a joke, but we, we, we talk about it quite often because as we do street evangelism, and you tell people about going out to the streets or going to places and preaching the gospel in the, in the public, the number one question that a lot of people always ask is, well, how many people did you lead to Christ? Right? Because in the world standards, that is the judgment of success of a ministry. If you went out and you preached the gospel in public, how many people prayed a prayer and accepted Jesus on that day? My answer has become, when somebody asks me, how many people did you lead to Christ? I say, all of them. Because that's the job of a Christian. When we share the gospel, we lead every person to Jesus. And then there, the Holy Spirit's work takes over. It's not my job to convince somebody to become a Christian. I can't save anybody. I can't save a single person in my own strength. It's all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be doing and attempting great things for God. Notice what it says here. It says, many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here. We've talked about this in times past. We understand that signs and wonders, these great miracles that were being performed by the apostles, were given for one reason. They were a verification of the apostles' teaching at a time when the New Testament text had not been written, had not been established, and the people did not possess it in their hands. 
So as the apostles were out teaching, God gave miracles as a testimony and a verification that what they were teaching was truly his word. They were able to do miraculous things that no one else could do except be the fact that they were actually messengers and servants of God. We no longer have needs for signs and wonder types of miracles because now we have the greatest miracle God has given to us in his word that we hold and possess the very word of God in our hands. And I would suggest to you this morning that the miracles that God does today when he saves someone from hell is far greater than any of the miracles that the apostles did. Because if I could go out this morning and go down to the funeral home and raise somebody from the dead, you know what's going to happen? That person's going to die again. If I could go out here and cause the ears of a deaf man to be opened, you know what's going to happen? He might live for another 40 years, but then he's going to die. But when we go out and we share the gospel and someone turns from their sin and turns to Christ, you've not just given them something that changes their life in the here and now, although it does. They know know forgiveness of sin. They know freedom in Christ. They have the power of the Holy Spirit. But you have also, God has also given them eternal life. That, my friends, is a miracle. Now, I want you to notice not just the impact they had, but I want you to also notice the community was caring. Look at verses 44 and 45. And they had all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them all with anyone as anyone might have need. Now, let me be clear this morning. This is not a prescription for socialism or communism. Although many today try to point to this passage as being exactly that. In fact, one commentator said not only, he says this is not a prescription for communism, but it is a prescription for commonism. They had all things in common. Now I want you to notice here what is actually happening. You have to remember that these beloved brothers and sisters were coming out of Judaism. Many of those who were in this early church would have been disowned by their families. They would have said, oh, you're going to convert to this Christianity. Well, you're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. We we don't want to have anything to do with you. Many of them would begin to suffer under persecution. People wouldn't shop at their businesses anymore. People wouldn't do business with them. They would persecute them. So you had a group of people Not just always wealthy, you had also had a large number of these people who came from poorer backgrounds. It was a very eclectic body of Christ. And because you had some who were rich and some who were poor, some who still had houses, some who had been kicked out of their houses, some who were being persecuted, some who had been ostracized by their family, there were great needs that arose in the church. And because they were a community, because they were a fellowship of faith, they cared about one another. And so what the scripture is telling us here is because they cared about one another, they didn't view all their possessions and all their things. They didn't view their lives as separate entities anymore. When he says they have all things in common, they are together. They are a body. It's not the Jones family and the Smith family. It is the church family. And because they had all things in common, they saw each other as the body of Christ Notice it says they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. Notice there the key phrase there, as anyone might have need. 
There's a beautiful demonstration here first of generosity because they loved one another. Because they loved one another, if there was a need that arose, they would sell what was necessary in order to meet that need. And what I thought was profound about this, if you think about it from the idea of a family, it's really not all that exceptional because this is what families do. If someone in your family who you dearly love, say a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, maybe a child, come to you and said, hey, listen, I need, I need some money. You know, my car broke down and I can't make it to work this week if I don't get this repaired. I need to borrow $500. Or could you give me $500 to fix this car? What parent in this room, if you had the money, would not say, yeah, here, here's the money, go fix your car. And if you didn't, you would go say, hey, well, let me go see if I can, I can sell this thing and I'll get the money. We're going to get your car back on the road. That's generosity. That's love. That's living life in commonality. So these brothers and sisters were generous towards one another because they were family. And if you would do that for a son or a daughter because they're family, we should be doing that for one another. These needs were not collected. Every, every believer in the New Testament church here in Jerusalem did not sell all of their possessions. They did not sell all of their homes. And they did not bring all the money to be gathered into one lump sum and distributed evenly amongst all the church. We know that this process that was happening here was often fraught with difficulties and was a voluntary program because all throughout the scriptures of the book of Acts and other places, we see Christians after this moment who still own houses, who still own possessions, and who still use those things for their own purposes. But what we see here is a willingness and a concern for others that they would be willing to make a sacrifice in order to help out a member of the community. They were willing to do what was necessary. When a need arose, they would take care of it. As I thought about this this week, you know one of the things that's necessary for this whole process to work? Is you have to know each other. It speaks back to this aspect of community. You can't know the needs of your brothers and sisters sitting next to you unless you are living an active part of their life. This is the reason why community and fellowship is so important. So that when needs arise in the body of Christ, we should be the first ones to know about it. It shouldn't be the neighbor across the street. It shouldn't be the family member across the country. It should be each other, that we know those needs. Now, finally, I want you to notice, as we finish here this morning, not just as the community care, but the community grows. Look at verse 46 and 47. He says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to notice there in verse 46, he says, day by day, continuing. The work of the Christian faith, the work of the community of Christ does not stop. It continues day by day. The work that God has called us to is continuing day by day. And, and be encouraged this morning that it's not a drearysome task. Sometimes it's tiring. I, I'm not going to stand up here this morning and say that sometimes what God calls us to do can be tiring. But even in the midst of that tiresomeness, it's glorious. It's good. Because God encourages us along the way. So we see that if we want to see the community of faith grow, 
and we think about our church and we desire for our church to grow, here is, is Luke laying out what that looks like. He says that day by day they were continuing, notice there, with one mind. Speaks to the idea of unity, of fellowship and community, that we all have the same thought in our mind. And really, inherently, this is the sense of why we're spending these three weeks talking about these three ideas. Deeper in community, uh, higher in worship, deeper in community, and farther in mission. Because we want to be unified on what it is that we're going to endeavor to do as a church. He says, day by day, with one mind, notice in the temple and breaking bread. Now, you might ask yourself a question. Why were they still going to the temple? They don't need to go to the temple anymore. But here we find this early church going back to the temple. Every day, morning and evening, there were sacrifices and prayers that were happening. Now, these Christians weren't going back to the temple to worship. The worship at the temple had been advocated. It was done with. The veil had been torn. There was no longer any need for sacrifices because of Christ. But these New Testament believers were going back to the temple for one purpose, and that was because there were a lot of people there. And there were a lot of people there who needed to hear about the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. That you no longer needed to go to the high priest here on earth, but you could go to the true high priest who sits at the right hand of God. So they were going back to the temple because that's where the people were. So what we see here is a church that's going outside of the walls of the congregation. Remember I said earlier, this gathering is for the body of Christ. But if this gathering is for the body of Christ, it necessitates that there must be something that the body of Christ does for those outside of the walls. And far too often what happens is churches huddle together inside the four walls of the church and they talk about the woes of the world and they talk about how dark and dismal it is, but they never get up and do anything about it. The early church wasn't like that. They were going out day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. And as they went out to share their faith, as they went out to reach people outside of the walls of the church, the community would grow. They were breaking bread from house to house and taking their meals together. Sharing meals is not just Baptist, it's biblical. We're to eat together. In fact, I think we should probably eat together more than we do. There's something really incredible that something so simple as sharing a meal with someone, the power that it can have in our life and in our faith. Breaking bread together. We see it all throughout the New Testament. But it's something I think as our, as our country and our culture becomes more isolated, that we, 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 we see the significance of how important this is that we need to be eating meals together. We need to be going to each other's houses. We need to be gathering here as the church. We need to even be going out in public, sharing meals together, because it's not just the idea of the meal, but it's this aspect of family and community. I'm sure for some of you, probably most of you in this room, some of the fondest memories you have of your family are centered around a table somewhere. Whether it be a family Christmas dinner, (coughs) whether it be breakfast that you had with your family every Saturday morning or Sunday morning, Some of our deepest connections occur around a table sharing a meal together. So we need to be breaking bread. They were evangelistic. They were community-minded. And notice it says that they were doing this with gladness and sincerity of heart. This sincerity speaks to the idea of they truly wanted to do this. This wasn't something they were being forced to do. They wanted to do this because they knew the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord should lead us 
to evangelism. The joy of the Lord should lead us to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I would be so bold to say this morning that if you have no desire, in fact, Spurgeon said this, he said, if you have no desire to be, see others saved, you are not saved yourself, be sure of that. If we have no desire to see people come to faith in Christ, then we need to be deeply concerned about what we understand about who God is. I'm not saying this morning that you should wake up tomorrow with a desire to go stand on a street corner and, and read Scripture. But you should have a desire in your heart that you want to know and see people who are far from God come to know who God is. That should be a natural inclination in the heart of a Christian. He says, praising God, verse 47, and having favor with all the people. Speaks to this idea of worship. And when he says all the people, he's talking about those even outside of the church. What he means by this is that the action, the attitudes, and the demeanor of these believers even had an effect on those outside the church. That they recognized, maybe they didn't agree, Maybe they had not put their faith and trust in Christ, but as they watched the church in action here in the early part of the New Testament, they knew that something was going on there. And they knew that these people were genuine and serious and excited about their faith. It says they had favor with all the people. And then finally, look at this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice here, Luke does not say, because of Peter's eloquent sermon, the Lord was adding to their number. Notice he does not say, because of the strength of the Christians in the early church, the Lord was adding to their number day by day. He just says, the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Why? The psalmist tells us and says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. It is not about our power to grow the church. It is God's power that grows the church. It's not about our strength, but it's about his strength. It says it's the Lord's work. All God has called us to do is to be obedient to him. And if we'll do what Luke points out here, right? If we will live our lives in continual devotion to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Notice what it says. It says, because the people were doing those things, because they were continually devoting themselves. And again, verse 46, day by day continuing. This speaks to this aspect of, of, of the Christian faith. Day by day, day by day, moment by moment. It never stops continuing to do what God has called us to do. It says, because of that, the Lord added to their number. And I, I love what it says here. Because in verse 46, Luke has said that they were day by day continuing with one mind. And then he said that God was what? Day by day adding to their number those who were being saved. As they continued day by day, the Lord responded day by day. Oftentimes we can be tempted to look a month, a year, 10 years into the future and miss what the Lord wants to do in the day by day. Brothers and sisters, let's be faithful to do what God has called us to do and trust him in his word. 
Take him at his promises here that if we will do what he's called us to do, he will respond day by day. We desire to see this community change for the gospel of Christ. It just takes us day by day, continually devoting ourselves to him. Last week, we said we were going to go higher in worship this week. Let's go deeper in community. Let's pour in to the community of faith that God has given us here, that we can see his work being manifested in Waynesville and in Haywood County and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, for your instruction. And Father, it is our desire that we would grow deeper in our community of faith, that we would grow deeper as the body of Christ. We desire, Father, to see your hand at work here in Haywood County. We desire to see lost people coming to faith. We desire to see these our church. We desire to see other churches in this community growing with new believers, those who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to remain faithful in the task, to devote ourselves to your word, to devote ourselves to fellowship with one another, to the table which we are about to receive, Father, but also to prayer. Lord, may we not forget the importance of what we're doing even here in this moment, praying, Father, bringing our requests before you, pouring out our hearts and asking you, Father, beseeching you in behalf of and on the authority of the name of Jesus to do those things which you have promised that you would do. We ask boldly this morning, Lord, but you would grow our church, that you would bring in like-minded brothers and sisters, Lord, not just so we have a large number here on Sunday morning, but, Father, so we could have a greater impact on lostness here in Haywood County. Father, as we've been sitting here for this time this morning, thousands of people who have have driven by this church who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. May that break our heart. May that drive us to action. Lord, may we dig deeper into the community of faith in order that we may see your hand at work in this town and in this community. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.